Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking with Stephen Cutler. Stephen is a multiple New York Times best-selling author, award-winning journalist and one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. He's the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project and an international, which is an international organization dedicated to the scientific study and research of flow and peak states. His book, The Rise of Superman, was one of the most talked about books in 2013 and the first book in history to land on the national bestseller list in both the sports, science and business uh, categories simultaneously. And his 2015 book, Bold, has been described as a visionary roadmap for change by President Bill Clinton. Stephen, thank you so much for talking to me today. This is so, so exciting. It's my pleasure, Duncan. I was, uh, this is, I was just thinking to myself, this has probably been one of the easiest and yet most difficult uh, interviews to like prep for. So easy, just because I've been just, just fascinated. Like, there's so many different things going on, so many amazing studies and like talks, and it's just been unbelievable. But difficult, I've been trying to think, how on earth can I get any sort of focus? So it might just be a random scattergun approach. I mean, I think like the schedule and focus is probably going to go a bit out of the window, but this is really exciting. Deep breaths. Take some deep breaths with me. You know, I'm talking to a flow expert, so I'll, 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 be, I'll be finding my flow throughout this talk. <laughs> but one of the things um, which you mentioned, and it's on your website, is you had uh, quite a debilitating illness and, you know, only about 10% functional. You'd been bedbound for almost three years. How did flow states and, like, getting into a flow state, how did that sort of help bring you back to life, I think you described it as? Yeah, so uh, it was a really radical experience. I, as you pointed out, I've been sick for about three years. I had Lyme disease. And, uh, the doctors had pulled me off drugs. There was nothing else anybody could do for me. And uh, I, you know, I was suicidal. I was going to kill myself because I was, you know, I could literally work like forty minutes a day, and the rest of the time I could lie on the couch and moan. Right, and in the middle of like, you know, the question of when was I going to do it, that sort of stuff. A friend of mine shows up at my house and demands that we go surfing. And it was, you know, it was a ridiculous request. I couldn't walk across a room, forget about going surfing. And she wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave and kept badgering me. And after, you know, three, four hours of this, I was like, whatever, who cares? I can kill myself tomorrow. Let's just go surfing. Anything to get her to shut up. And uh, she took me out to the waves. And, you know, they, they literally had to walk me out to the break. I couldn't walk out there on my own. They gave me a board the size of a Cadillac and... Uh, couple seconds later a wave came right it was a tiny day maybe a two foot little wave but I spun the board around paddled a couple times and I popped up into a totally different dimension right a dimension I didn't even know existed my senses were incredibly heightened time was passing strange I seemed to be passing in a freeze frame and a crawl and the craziest part was I felt great I mean like I felt better than normal I felt amazing right the best I'd felt in years and uh it felt so good. I caught a couple more waves that day and uh, had these same quasi-mystical experiences along the way. And, you know, went home and was totally disassembled, like couldn't move for a couple of weeks. But when I could walk around again, I went back to the ocean and I did it again. Had the same kind of crazy quasi-mystical experience. And uh, over the course of six to eight months, when the only thing I was doing differently was surfing and having these strange altered state experiences... I got better. I went right from like 10% functionality, as you said, up to about 80% functional. And so my first question was, you know, what the hell's going on, right? Um, on top of the fact that like I was feeling better and surfing should not be a cure for chronic autoimmune conditions, um, I was having these quasi-mystical experiences in the waves. And I'm a science guy. I don't have quasi-mystical experiences ever, right? 
And I was sure the disease had gotten into my brain and was rotting my brain. And that's why I was having these experiences. So, you know, I lit out a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me. And first thing I discovered is that these strange states of consciousness that I was getting into had a name, right? We technically call them flow states, right? They're moments of optimal performance when we feel our best and perform our best or kind of more familiarly. So those states of total rapt attention and right focused absorption where you're so concentrated on what you're doing on the task at hand, everything else just disappears. And performance, all aspects, mental and physical, go through the roof. I also discovered that there's a big neurobiological change in the body that happens as we move into these states. Two things happen important for my story. First, um, the nervous system gets reset. So all the stress hormones get flushed out of the system as you move into flow, and it calms the nervous system down. Autoimmune condition is a nervous system going haywire. So calming my nervous system down, that was a big deal. The other thing is there's a bunch of neurochemicals that show up in flow. All of them burst, uh, boost the immune system. So the combination is what allowed me to get back to health. But what I quickly discovered, and the reason we're talking today, is kind of the same state of consciousness that got me from super subpar back to normal was helping normal people go all the way up to Superman. Yeah, really interesting. Because one of the things you, you, you've you been studying and looking at is um, – because like you said there, like an, an extreme case of where, you know, people in flow is for your book um, about um, being Superman, it's you were looking at extreme sports. So, you know, big wave surfers, um, like extreme BMXers, um, like free divers, because they have that choice that they've got to be in flow or, or they die, you know. And so you, you, you were studying, like thinking if you can work it out in that state, then you could apply this to business. You can apply this to society. You can apply this to like different facets of life, not just in the extreme sports arena. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We, the, one of the problems with flow research has always been um, it's a subjective state, right? The only way I know you're in flow is I ask you the question, are you in flow? And, you know, these are the characteristics and, you know, are they showing up? And Now, psychologists have, we've got a well-validated flow questionnaire, right? It's 50 years of research. It's one of the kind of strongest questionnaires studies in, in psychology, that said, it's still subjective, right? And if you're looking for really objective stuff, um, it was tricky. But actually, metro sport athletes, as you pointed out, um, the level of performance has risen so much in the past 25 years, probably because of flow. These folks have gotten really good at getting into the state. And if they're not in the state, right, they're going home in a body bag or they're going to the hospital, right? So it gave us a hard data set. We said, okay, these guys, gals are in flow. Let's figure out what they're doing to get there and work backwards. And we have. We've, we now know that flow has 18 triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Action sports are packed with them, of course, obviously. But these triggers um, can show up anywhere, right? It all walks left. We know flow is ubiquitous, so it shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided these certain initial conditions are met. And in fact, just to kind of drive that point home, at the Flow Genome Project, we run, uh, we have a diagnostic survey. If you go to our website, there's a free diagnostic survey. It says, hey, if you go in this direction, this is where you're likely to find the most flow in your life, right? And there's lots of categories, right? Um, including, you know, high-risk action board sportsmen, hard chargers. And, uh, but it turns out over 8,000 people have taken the survey. So it's one of the largest studies ever done in optimal psych at this point. And 48% of them find flow doing knowledge work, Right thinking and being creative and 
you know, doing radio shows or writing books or working at IBM or coding software, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, it, it's very, uh, it's associated with action adventure sport athletes and they're really good at it, right? It shows up everywhere and is, you know, critically important in all walks of life. Two things. I mean, like you said, there's 17, there's lots of different things, but one, two, that jumped out. There was this quote, which, which, which was fantastic. Um, it was talking about how to get into flow. And I think you said that uncertainty is our rocket ride into the now. I love that idea of, um, yes, and that was just one of the ways. And, you know, novelty is another one, you know, being in new environments, new things, you know. And so these are all sort of triggers just to get us into that sort of state, is it? Mm-hmm. That was all that all the stuff you're describing is mostly uh, Robert Sapolsky's work at, at Stanford. Um, but he's basically figured out what you're describing is what we call the rich environment trigger, right? Lots of novelty, lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability. And all of these neurobiologically, all of them trigger the release of dopamine, right? Massive quantities of dopamine. Dopamine is a reward drug. It's also a focusing chemical, right? It does a lot of things for performance, drives attention, drives focus, drives flow. Um, and as you pointed out, the, if you look at studies, the brain loves nothing more than maybe, right? If we are in a novel, uncertain situation where anything can happen, as long as we're not terrified, it's awesome. We love it. Um, one study, which was a completely, I was not, we're not expecting it at all, but it was like traditional view is that, you know, we're only using 10% of our brain. And so, uh, people are suddenly thinking, okay, whether it's ultimate performance or state flow, surely it's only logical that then we're using, you know, our brain is firing on all cylinders. However, research now shows that actually we've got this completely wrong and it's actually back to front, isn't it? It is back to front. You're totally right. And it's funny because what you're talking about is, is, is called the 10% brain myth, right? And it was, it was this, William James made a comment that was sort of similar to it. He was actually accurate, but then Dale Carnegie, how to influence friends and make friends and find whatever uh, <laughs> he misquoted it. Right. And that's where it started. And you know, Hollywood, uh, there's a couple of movies that came out in the past couple of years that have this myth. Right. But as you pointed out, totally backwards, right. When we're moving into flow, a lot of different things are going on. But one of the things that happens is instead of the brain, you know, firing on all cylinders, it's actually shutting down. It's deactivating huge chunks of the brain are turning off. The technical term is transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality, hypo, H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down or shut down or deactivate. And frontality is the prefrontal cortex, right? The part that's right back here that you most frequently associate with you. It's your higher cognitive functions, sense of morality, sense of will, et cetera, right? This part of the brain is turning off and flow, and the results are incredible, right? For example, it's a part of your brain known as the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, it's in the prefrontal cortex, obviously, and it, it does a bunch of different stuff. But most importantly here, it governs your inner critic, right? Your inner Woody Allen, that nagging, always-on, defeatist voice in your head that doesn't shut up. I, I heard a stat yesterday on how many words we actually say to ourselves during the day, and it's just a, it's a tremendous number. It was huge. It was an incredible thing. Anyways, this voice shuts off, right? We are liberated. We're free from ourselves. And we experience this, right, with nobody judging, we stop judging ourselves. It's liberation, it's freedom. Risk-taking goes up. Creativity goes way up, right? We're not second-guessing our good ideas, so we're having more of them. Drives a lot of stuff. And, and, and of course, it, we, you know, it's incredibly pleasurable for us. The God Helmet. I, c- I cannot ask you about this. The God Helmet. How, how can 
what is the God helmet, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know? Um, and it's basically how can we, you can give yourself near death and out of body experiences. You can actually, um, yeah, you can, you can create that experience. How, how is that possible? Sure. Hold on one second. I got to let out a dog. <laughs> Sorry about that. No My worries. wife and I run an animal sanctuary. So there's tons of dogs running around all <laughs> over the place and I had to let one out. Um, there's way back in the fifties, uh, Wilder Penfield is kind of this pioneering neurosurgeon discovered that if you stimulate the right temporal lobe, really strange things happen, right? You can have out of body experiences. You can have that whole life review that shows up in quote unquote near death experiences. You can have visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, feelings of oneness, um, and uh, also a feeling of what they call a sense presence, like the feeling like there's an angel or a god or a demon or a devil in the room with you, right? All that stuff happens because of the when we stimulate the right temporal lobe. And we, we sort of know, in some of these experiences, we sort of know why. We have an understanding of what's actually going on um, biologically and why it's producing these experiences. But <clears throat> building on that research... 10, 15 years ago, uh, a neuroscientist named Michael Persinger built a helmet that directs kind of weak magnetic fields that pulse on and off towards the right temporal lobe. Thousands of people have worn the device and something like 80% of them have a profoundly strange experience, right? Most of them experience this sense presence. Jesus has showed up like 20 times. Um, you have out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. Some people, nothing happens, right? There are some people who seem that are totally, you know, can't experience this stuff at all. We also know that flow, even though parts of the brain are turning off, in really deep flow states, it also appears that the right temporal lobe is becoming really hyperactive. So these experiences, these so-called mystical experiences, also show up in flow. In fact, the action sports story, I was just writing about this this morning, so it's in my head. Uh, Seth Morrison, the big mountain skier, the very first time he threw a double backflip off, it was somewhere between 100 and 150 foot cliff, huge cliff, just crazy, crazy trick. He um, floated, flew like right out of his body and was like 50 feet away watching himself and a double backflip is totally blind. You can't see where you're going. You can sort of see your landing, but you can't see yourself at all. And it was the first time in his life he actually got to watch himself throw the trick. So yeah, really strange things seem to happen when you stimulate the right temporal lobe. Persinger has built the God helmet, um, so now you know you can go have that experience. And there's a Todd Murphy, who's one of Persinger's students, uh, built a commercial version, Shakti helmet, I think is what it's called. Um, so there's a commercial version. It's not quite as robust as the God helmet, but there's a commercial version available. What this tells us, of course, is that kind of these experiences for decades, forever, for millennia, have been, you know, the sole domain of, like, misfits, misfits, madmen, right? They were totally off limits. They, you couldn't control them. They were lightning in a bottle when they showed up, and they were really, really weird. Now, not only do we understand the science underneath them, they're accessible to anybody. So here in America, right, there's 80 million Americans who identify as spiritual but not religious, right? They want direct experiences of the numinous, well, turns out direct experience of the numinous is now available for a trip to Radio Shack, right? And that, well, that's, so that's scalable. That can be, you, you can have it actually through like a game they were talking about on the Oculus Rift or something, actually, in, in, like putting this into the game or maybe even like one day onto an iPhone app. Like, this is crazy. Like spiritual experiences as an app. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's a weird world we're living into. 
another one was like another one which was just like what like it completely blew my mind is this idea of um mind uploading like being able to like you know this is in your new book tomorrowland you're talking about like one of the, th- the future things is like uploading consciousness onto a computer like how how is that even possible i mean because that takes this whole idea like you were talking about descartes <laughs> like i think therefore i am but now one day like, people are actually going to be able to think other people's thoughts or something along those lines well, there's a lot of different ways people are playing with it, but what I was writing about was actually uh, some work being done at British Telecom. Um, they were the, right; they pioneered it. Uh, uh, it was writing it was for a story for the New York Times about what's called the Soul Catcher Project, which is the idea, right, that we can upload ourselves and store ourselves in silicon. Their approach is based. Well, their approach was, and it's a limited approach, right? But they figured, hey, if we can record all the data that our senses take in, right? Couple it with a strong enough information processor, right? And a robust playback system. We think we're going to get some recording of consciousness, right? And it's one theory. It's one idea. But what's crazy about it is this. At the time, this was in 2000 when they started working on it we already could record all the inputs of our senses, right? And we've only gotten better at that over the past 10 years. Um, They were waiting for a robust information playback device, which is starting to be our computers today, right? We're getting fast enough for it. And the, uh, excuse me, robust information processor and the playback device, right? Oculus Rift would work. It's a robust VR system. So, you know, it sounds like a crazy idea. They've said, hey, by 2025, we think we could have a rudimentary version. Ray Kurzweil is also looking at this, thinks they're off by 25 years and it's going to be around 2050. I have no idea. But what I think is interesting is this, right? What you're talking about here, so in Tomorrowland, right, I'm looking at the transformation of science fiction into science fact, and I'm really looking at kind of the massively disruptive impact it's going to have on culture. And... One example is religion, right? Religion, all of the religions, major religions, use the threat of the hereafter, right? What's going to happen next to shape behavior in this life? Well, we're coming into a place where the hereafter is actually the here and now, right? So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality? That sounds like a crazy question, but it's something we're going to have to actually answer probably in this century. That's mad. <laughs> in your book, Bold, like, there's a whole section on um, the psychology and actually getting, you know, your mind uh, ready for actually, you know, thinking on scale, thinking, you know, um, large. Um, and one of them, this phrase, which I love, was this idea of moonshot thinking. Um, could you describe, like, just to our listeners, like, what you mean by moonshot thinking? Yeah, we actually borrowed the term uh, from Astro Teller, who's the head of Google X. And I'll tell you, the, the backstory was kind of when Larry Page brought in Astro to Google X is Google Skunk Works, right? It's their big think research arm, crazy project, Google Glass, their autonomous cars, all their most sci-fi technologies come out of there. And when Astro got hired to run this division, they were trying to figure out what exactly he was doing there. And he kept saying, well, am I doing, is this a skunk works? Is this an incubator? And Larry Page kept saying, no, that's fucking boring, man. Shut up. That's boring. No, no, no. And finally, Astro said, well, are we taking moonshots? And Larry said, yeah, that's absolutely what we're doing. 
And so they define a moonshot as a thousand pole improvement over existing technology, like a 10x improvement, right? Not how do you make this 10% better? How do you make it a thousand percent better, right? They're talking about how do you replace vacuum tube with silicon, something like that, right? The interesting thing about it, because you we do go into the mindset of, well, what does it take to take on these giant Herculean challenges? Obviously, flow plays a huge role in this, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. One of the things is this way of thinking, of taking on these huge challenges, and the reason, and this is not my deduction, this is Astro Teller, so I've seen the same thing in my life. Uh, my co-writer, Peter Diamandis, has seen the same thing in his. When you go after, kind of, if you go, go out and say, hey, I'm going to make this, you know, this pen, I'm going to make this pen 10% better, right? Well, I'm sort of in a smartness contest with everybody else in the world, right? Everybody else who's working on pens, they're all trying to make it 5%, 10% better, right? But if you try to make it 1,000% better, right, you're not in a contest with anyone. And it oftentimes, and a lot of times you're going to fail spectacularly, but sometimes it turns out it's a lot easier to take on the giant Herculean challenge because you have to throw out all your pre-existing assumptions, all the original technology, everything to throw out and start from scratch. And it works. And the term moonshot comes from when, when, when John Kennedy wanted us to go to the moon in America, we didn't have any of the technology. We didn't know how to get there, right? All we knew is the Russians had gone into space. They were kicking our ass and we had to do something. So hell, let's go to the moon in 10 years, right? He said, we're going to do it in 10 years. And we had none of the technology. We didn't know how to do it at all. And in fact, you know, when you look at who they hired for it, right, they didn't hire August engineers who were 67 years old. They hired 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, people just graduated from college because they didn't have all these preconceived notions, right? Their brains were perfectly tuned to moonshots because they didn't have 40 years of experience saying, hey, this is not how you can do it, right? An expert is often somebody who tells you how something can't be done. Right. And they weren't interested in that. I love that. I love that idea because yeah, it's so obvious. I mean, like, you know, yeah, if you're trying to change something by five, 10 percent, you you can't help but use the framework which already exists. But if you're trying to change on such a crazy level, just you just oh, I, I love that. You just got to just throw all the rules out the window and just have a complete like blank canvas. You know, I, totally different. But um, cognitively. Peter Diamandis, right, who I grew up old with, his laws are in there. These are his aphorisms, his maxims that we live by. And both Peter and I are big fans of having these lists. Um, this is a side note, big fans of these lists. Here's why. Um, when you're gripped, right, when you're really scared, when you're freaking out, your brain only searches for solutions in really, like, logical puzzles. Like, it goes in small circles, basically. If you look at somebody who's really stressed trying to problem solve, it's going to look a lot like OCD right? Under the hood, right? Just going in circles, going in circles, going in circles, going in circles. So when you're going in circles, you can't figure out what do I do next? It's great to have a list of all the shit that's worked for you in the past that you can turn to in times of crisis because your brain won't remember the solutions at that time, right? So it's a very useful hack. And I personally, and don't take anybody else's advice, make your own list, trust your own experience and your own history, right? That's the thing here. So Peter's got a list. You can borrow his bar some from mine, but really make your own. But one of the things on Peter's list is this idea that if you, you know, if you seem stuck, begin again at the next higher level. I often find that that can be the case. Like when I'm really stuck and I find myself focused on kind of niggling 
annoying little problems, right? Like when my wife is irking me for no reason, like and my business partner, right? When all that crap is going on, the problem is I've been too focused at this level, right? I need to radically lift my vision. So usually at that point, what I do is I take on some kind of Herculean ridiculous challenge because it kicks my head out. I think you see the same thing in action and adventure sports on a different angle. They all, action and adventure sport athletes, and myself included, doesn't matter what you're dealing with in your kind of day-to-day challenges. When you go out and put your life on the line, you know, for something, it really fixes your perspective right quick, right? Suddenly, the niggling day-to-day stuff doesn't bother you at all. You give it, you can see completely perspective, actually see it for what it is. <laughs> yeah. So I think, that, you know, I think there's a lot of proof from a lot of different angles coming in to talk about kind of this mindset shift that Astro talks about with moonshot thinking. Mm-hmm.